Numerically speaking, ours is a small tradition. And sometimes because of a certain kind of, shall we say, religious uh, influence anxiety, we have during our history tended to claim notable people as Unitarian Universalist when they may not be. Uh, the, the, the fellow America's greatest poet prophet, Walt Whitman, gave us our mission here at Wellsprings. Not a Unitarian Universalist. Oh. I mean, he was in his heart. <laughs> he hung out with a lot of Unitarians of his time. Emerson, Thoreau, Barton, those kind of great names. But honestly, in a critique that has been made of us numerous times over the years, he found them far too much up in their heads. Whitman was more earthy. Edgar Allan Poe, not a Unitarian Universalist. There's some cool history here, and actually in a way that really befits Edgar Allan Poe. His last completed poem in his lifetime, Annabelle Lee, if any of you remember that, lovelorn tale of a lost love, it is rumored that Annabelle Lee, the historical Annabelle Lee, is buried in the Unitarian Church's graveyard in Savannah, Georgia. And a P.S. here, in a story that is fitting of Poe, it is rumored that his long-lost love that his heart pined for up until his death, that she to this day haunts the graveyard, haunts the cemetery of the Unitarian Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Take it as you will. Still not a Unitarian Universalist. So I've always been a fan of Poe's. And my favorite, my favorite of his writings, of his short stories, is this one. This one, The Mask of the Red Death. That maybe some of you might recall. I like it because it has that usual spooky Poe thing at the end. The chilling part. But also, it's got a pretty good eye for social critique as well. Here's the basics of it. A wealthy ruler, a wealthy prince named Prospero, not too much symbolism in that name whatsoever, is there, knowing that there is a plague, the Red Death, rampaging through the countryside, decides that he will seal himself and all of his fellow noble people, nobility, up in the castle, high above where all the suffering is, and they will throw a party. A masquerade ball, thinking that their privilege will protect them and keep them safe. But not. Because, unbeknownst to all of the revelers, the Red Death himself has come as one of the masqueraded people, an uninvited guest. And the final scene, the Red Death reveals himself, and not even their power the protection, the privilege can protect all of the revelers from the same fate as everyone else. I've been thinking about the Mask of the Red Death recently. 
Some of you might have heard of what I think might be the most famous, and I use that kind of in air quotes, but the most famous academic paper that's been published in the last five or ten years. It's from a couple scholars at Princeton and Northwestern University that reveals some kind of difficult truths about our society. It shows that in this age of increasing income stratification, income inequality, that we are not nearly the democracy that we might like to believe that we are. That many of our laws, many of what gets passed as legislation, is reflective not of the will of the majority as revealed in poll after poll after poll after poll, but it is reflective of more narrow interests. What this paper sets out, not to prove, but may indicate is what some people are saying is that we are becoming less a democracy than an oligarchy, the rule by the few of concentrated wealth. I heard another example of this, I think it was last summer, in a magazine that I read fairly often, not because I agree with it, but because it asks really searing questions, important questions for progressives like myself, and is not afraid to critique folks who are on, quote-unquote, their side. The magazine is The American Conservative. And in this one particular article in the magazine, the writer was critiquing a farm bill, proposed legislation in the House of Representatives that did this, that stripped out hundreds of billions of dollars for people who are on food stamps, almost entirely zeroed it out, while leaving untouched, all of the subsidies for big business, for agribusiness. Now, this writer came up with a particular name that really got my attention for these kind of politicians. He called them Monty Burns politicians. <laughs> Those of you who are Simpsons fans, Montgomery G. Burns, the oligarch, the owner of the nuclear power plant who is truly a sociopath in his complete inability to care about others, specifically others who have less power than himself. Than himself. So it's in this kind of context. I could go on and on and on with other examples. I'm sure you have them. It's in this social context that the song of the soul for this morning, Naomi, Naomi Shelton and the Gospel Queen song, Am I Asking Too Much? Am I asking too much from the underside, from those people who do not have much? Am I asking too much? A question that puts before all of us, what is enough? Who is enough? Who is suffering? Who matters? And who is marginalized? This is even more than a political question. This is a spiritual question. This is a question about our values. It is a question for a time in American society in which competition and the feeling of scarcity and of entering into survival mode, regardless of our class, seems to be almost ubiquitous for so many of us. And Brene Brown, who I like to call America's social worker, she captures this dynamic with as much insight as she captures so much about American society right now. She says, worrying about scarcity is our culture's version of post-traumatic stress. It happens when you've been through too much, and rather than coming together to heal, which requires vulnerability, 
We're angry and scared and at each other's throats. Rather than coming together to heal, which requires vulnerability, we are angry and scared and at each other's throats. And that's not all of us, but it certainly describes too many of the ways that we relate to each other in our society right now. It influences how we use and abuse our human resources, our natural, our ecological resources. It influences all the ways in which we exist even our parenting. I read something about this not too long ago that I posted on my Facebook page, and it drew back so many beautiful, thoughtful, heart-opening comments from actually many of you about parenting. And it was in this context of scarcity and who merits and who matters. And the question put before this uh, piece by Alfie Cohn was this question of, which maybe a bunch of you have wrestled with, Should we only give trophies to the winners, or do we give trophies to all who participate? You know, I know some of you might have different perspectives on that. And the writer took it to this place of asking this question, do our kids today have it too easy? That's something we can hear a lot about. Kids today are too coddled, have it too easy. And the writer off he comes and said, well, no, that was not their perspective. Not in a society in which survival and scarcity are so much of what we're focused on that in fact the debate about should kids get trophy only if they win or if they participate is reflective of our deep anxiety about who we are right now. This is what the writer said. That as opposed to forms of parenting that sometimes can set some very high standards but also let kids know that at base they are unconditionally loved. Alfie Cohn says at the base of who we are right now in the society, is actually, unfortunately, a commitment to conditionality. They write, a commitment to conditionality lives at the intersection of economics and theology. This conditionality is where lectures about the law of the marketplace meet sermons about what we must do to earn our way into heaven. Here, almost every human interaction even among family members, is regarded as a kind of transaction. A kind of transaction that asks the question, what are we really worth to each other? Is what we're worth to each other only a matter of what we produce? That you are only as good to me as you can do for me and save for what you can do for me? I don't have to see you. This is a painful question for many people in our society right now. It affects bottom lines, but even more than that, it affects our values and our hearts. And it is a key, key question. There's a TED Talk right now that quotes a a guy who I've used before from this pulpit. And it has a very provocative question. This title of this TED Talk was released just recently. Does having money make you mean? Does having money make you mean? Let that sink in for a little bit. Let that make, you un- Let that make me uncomfortable. Let that make you uncomfortable. Because his answer is actually, yeah, it's more likely to. This is a guy who runs a lab at Berkeley who's demonstrated over and over again in multiple forms of experiments 
It's observed over and over again. That, for example, and again, I'm not trying to individualize this. You know, I'm trying to create all these caveats around that so I'm trying to not make you too uncomfortable. I should probably stop doing that. So one of the things they've studied is that if you drive a more expensive car, you are much more likely not to stop at crosswalks for other people. Demonstrated over and over again. Doesn't mean if you are here today and driving an expensive car that you're going to do that. It just means overall that that's a demonstrated truth. And it's not even whether we actually have money. What they did is they rigged a monopoly game. And in this monopoly game, they made it so that certain players were going to win over and over and over again, regardless of the choices that they made. And so here's the thing. The people who were winning all the time came to believe that it was their own inherent skill rather than just sheer absolute luck that gave them their good fortune. They believed that they were better than the other players, that they deserved more than the other players. Go and watch this TED Talk when you get a moment. It'll be corrective for many of us struggling with empathy, with compassion, with love for ourselves and for other people. And actually, I've got to tell you in this way, the social science is merely catching up to things we have known for thousands of years. These are the things that Jesus and Buddha taught us. Same reality, by the way, for both of these teachers, but from very different perspectives. Jesus taught as one who was poor and taught amongst the poor. And he taught about the ways in which our attachment to our standing in society, our privilege, might not let us see the worthiness of other people or ourselves and also gets in the way of the central biggest tenet there is in universalism, of God's unconditional love for everyone, no exceptions, no leaving anyone out. From the other side, Buddha, from the perspective of a wealthy person, I mean, talk about not being able to see because of privilege or because of wealth. Literally, the Buddha's parents, his mommy and his daddy, never wanted him to suffer, and so they locked him away in a castle, in which they provided everything he would ever want until one day he saw, it's kind of a rule of three in these ancient stories in which awakening has come, he saw all of a sudden that if we're lucky, we get old, (laughs) we get sick, and all of us die. This is why the Buddha came to understand Greed as what he called one of the three poisons. That our attachment to our standing, our privilege, our place may keep us from avoiding the great truths that unite us heart to heart and hand to hand and wholeness to wholeness with everyone else who lives. To be attached to greed, to be attached to so many things, stands in the way of the liberation that can come from this insight of our connection to and with each other. We talk about this in our core beliefs here at Wellsprings. We talk about how materialism, unhealthy relationships, and substance abuse lead to despair and to loneliness. And so many of these we see rampant in our society. And they all rest, regardless of whether we're wealthy or not, 
They all rest on this thing that Brene Brown talked about. This feeling of never enough. Materialism, never enough stuff. Always got to get more stuff. Unhealthy relationships, always one more conquest. Never enough love. Substance abuse, never enough to kill the pain or never enough to get me as high above it all as I might wish. These things all reveal a survival mode for self and to society. And in this context, it is easy, increasingly easy, for some from that survival mode place to gobble up more and more resources while so many millions more are left wanting. To move from modes of surviving, merely surviving, which often closes down the heart and closes down the ways in which we really perceive reality and each other. To move into ways that help us thrive. And really that's what spirituality is all about. It is about opening up the heart, opening up the soul, flourishing in the same way the seed naturally wants to grow into that flower, the human heart wants to grow into maturity. These are the fruits of spirituality in a nutshell. To see life, to see each other more clearly so that we can love more deeply. To see life, to see reality, to see each other more clearly so that we can love more deeply. This is at the heart of all true spiritual practice. Lama Surya Das, who's a Western-born Tibetan teacher, he talks about, you know, we don't sit, we don't meditate, we don't do yoga, any of this stuff to reach esoteric states. We don't do it so that we can see the future, remove all doubt. We have all these prayer spiritual practices simply for this, to learn over and over and over again how to love. How to love ourselves honestly, how to see the reality of other people in such a way that we can love their lives as well too. This is the deep seeing that becomes a way of living that is caring and compassionate. There are, in fact, a lot of different ways that we can practice this way of clear seeing of empathetic relationship. One of my favorites of these that I know probably a number of you are fans of, something called Humans of New York. Do you know humans of New York? This is a, well, actually, these are two humans of New York. They can be really warm and wonderful. This looks like a dad and a daughter. When I was little, he'd always let me stand on his feet when we walked in the ocean because I was so afraid of jellyfish. It's just, it's all like this. We'll keep on this one for a little bit. Thousands of pictures of people on the streets of New York, a photographer who I believe lost his job in the Great Recession and said, what am I going to do with myself now? I'm just going to go out and start taking pictures of people and learning their stories. This is empathetic seeing. This is what I find when I go to Humans of New York every day. Thousands of these pictures, some that are funny and cute and some that can ask difficult questions and even use difficult words like this next one. The hope is that after eight years, I'll be made a partner. Until then, the job description basically states that I'll be worked to death. And the question, so what's your greatest fear about the next eight years? Turning 40 and not having a personal life. Founding out that I've gotten where I want to be and there's nobody in my life to give a shit about where I am or what I've done. Whew. We peel back the label on people. We see a lot of life. 
We see troubling things that people wrestle with that make them feel awful about themselves. The feeling as if they're measuring up like this young person. I'm first generation. My parents moved here from China. My older sister's in a good college and knows exactly what she wants to do. And I'm not doing as well. I think I may be a disappointment to my family. Peel back the label. We can see how much we carry around. We can see the sadness and the loss that some of us have been carrying around for decades like this next person. Nobody came to my 10th birthday party. I have a vivid memory of helping my mother set the table, then watching through the window as the sun slowly set before finally realizing that nobody was coming. That moment pretty much set the themes the rest of my life. See if right now you feel maybe the heart opening just a little bit. The natural empathy that we all have. And to know that sadness sometimes is the best way to feed this, to opening to that sadness. And sometimes just recognizing the deepest wishes of the heart. An old man, a parking attendant. Someone who probably doesn't get a lot of regard when he's parking the cars of some of those people that I talked about before. I want to die in Poland. I want to go home. This is the spiritual practice of all the spiritual practices. Learning to see clearly so that we can love deeply. This is a commitment here at Wellsprings as well. This is why we have that ongoing relationship with Chester County Futures. I was talking with one of our mentors not too long ago in a team meeting, and this person revealed that they have been linked up with their mentor for the last couple months. And what they found about their, their mentee, their student that they're working with and mentoring, is that this young kid, this amazing, bubbly, smart young kid, is homeless. is couch surfing, basically. So she has a place to lay her head at night. This is why it's important that we care. This is why it's important that we have a relationship with Chester. This is why, folks, I want to encourage you, whether you have to run, walk, crawl it, please sign up for the 5K. This will make a real difference in the lives of kids who are struggling. And by the way, we know just a few of them. We can't do everything. But it's not an excuse not to do the things that we can do and that we're capable of doing. In the small group that Wellsprings is doing right now called The Heart for Struggling Kids, I was talking to one of the participants not too long ago. And this person said, I'm not sure where this work is going to take us. Individually, Or as a congregation. But what I do know is that this work is the work of empathy. Of paying attention to lives we might not otherwise pay attention to. And that is work that is always worthy of doing. If we want to not just survive, but thrive. This is spiritual work. We want to come alive with our full humanity. We cannot set ourselves off. Edgar Allan Poe was absolutely right. 
There is no power, no privilege, no prestige that will save us from our common humanity. Nor is there any that should or was right. David Brooks, uh, another person who I like a great deal, even if I disagree with some of his policy ideas, but I recognize in him a fellow person who is committed to the tools and to the gifts and to the practices of human flourishing. He wrote this this past Friday. Empathy opens us up to absorb the good and the bad. Love impels us not to just observe, but to seek union. To think as another thinks, and feel as another feels. I believe that this is the most important work in spiritual community, and by extension for our society right now, in which so much of our lives are reduced to transactions into the question explicitly or implicitly, what can you do for me that will move my life ahead? See if we stay stuck at the level of transaction, are we winning the trophy or are we not winning the trophy? We will miss the great religious and spiritual call into union, into communion, into those questions that I think we've got to return to and wrestle with every single day. I know I aspire to, and I fail all the time at it. What feeds our common humanity? What policies, what politics, what ways of relating feeds our common humanity? I agree with Naomi Shelton. This is not asking too much to return to this question over and over and over again. This is not asking too much. Indeed, I believe this question. Are we growing in caring? Are we growing in heart? Are we growing in compassion and empathy and love? That these questions are the only real questions worth asking. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of the limitless, undying love that shines around us, those million suns, that calls us on and on across this universe. May these lyrics of a poem and this poem of lyrics, this prayer, bring us comfort, bring us strength, and may it also challenge us Challenge us to ask those questions of who matters and who is marginalized. Of looking at our own ways of looking deeply enough that we are unafraid to ask how we might be leaving others out or treating others as if they do not count or matter. May we return and return and return again to this ancient universalist promise, this timeless universalist promise. That all matter. Everyone is included. And the love of this universe that birthed us ultimately belongs to and for and with all of us. No exemptions. Amen.